Father God, thank you for, for today. Uh, thank you for an opportunity to gather together in this space, uh, for the beautiful sunshine we have outside. Uh, God, we just pray that, uh, that you meet each of us uh, in this place with whatever we come in through the doors with. Uh, if we come in joyful, uh, we, meet, we experience uh, you and all of heaven rejoicing with us. If we come in mournful, uh, we realize that you meet us in that space too. Uh, God, as we focus particularly on what it means to partner together uh, for the work of the gospel, Lord, we just pray that you give us wisdom and your direction uh, in everything that we hear and how we experience you uh, to drive ourselves into a deeper love for you that pushes us into a deeper love for one another. pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right, so this week uh, brings us to the end of a series that we've been in for, uh, for the past six um, and it's the a series in which we've been asking ourselves the question, why does church matter? Why do we do this thing on Sunday morning? Uh, it's a question that's becoming more and more relevant in the culture around us. Why do we do this thing? Why do we gather together in this space? Why do we come together every Sunday? Why do we sing songs? Why do we listen to a message? What is it all about? Uh, what good does it do for us? And I hope that as we've gone through the series a little bit, you can see uh, that the that there is a value in this space, not because you check off some box when you come, not because you, God's not angry with you if you come or he is if you don't, not because we're going to judge you if you're not here or if you are, um, but because together we work uh, to, to actually create a space that looks a little bit more like heaven than hell, a place where we can care for each other and wrestle with difficult and deep truths. We can care for each other in the different things that we're going through, all while we try to continually find our way back to God together. And so throughout the series, we've been doing that by talking about partnership as well. This idea of partnering together on the mission that we're on. We've worked through the four commitments of what it means for Harbor Life, at least, to partner with us in our mission. And we're going to come to the end of that today. Actually, if we've got the slides with the four, with the four commitments on it, we've talked through each of these four different things here. We talked about how our partnership commitments be begins by focusing on Jesus, a declaration that Whatever we're trying to do, we're doing because we're looking to him first. Uh, that's the first thing that we commit to together, that we're going to try to figure out the, how to walk into the kind of life that Jesus had laid out for us. That that's going to be the, the, the center and first focus of everything that we do. We realize that after we accept that Jesus' way is the best way, though, it doesn't end there, which brings us to our commitment number two, which is, says, in that space, once we've acknowledged that Jesus' way is the best way, we have to continually take next steps towards living into that way. It's one thing to say we, can, we believe it's the best way. It's another one to actually practice it out through our daily lives. But even if we're taking steps individually, we realize that's not the end of the story either. That once we begin to try to live the kind of life that Jesus has laid out for us, we recognize it's hard. It's complicated. Sometimes it's hard to even understand what that looks like. And so we wrestle together to try to figure out what the Bible tells us about that. What is the best way to live? Sometimes it's really straightforward. Other times, as we all know, it's not. And so we participate in community together to help figure those things out. We also realize that we live in a world that's filled with brokenness and hardship. And so there are times in which we can't live that out on our own because we need the emotional or physical support of the people around us. And so we commit to be there for each other in those hard times, and to koinonia, as Lisa taught us a few weeks ago. And then finally, our hope is, if we're doing those first three things, if we're looking to Jesus first, if we're taking steps to live the kind of life that he's invited us to, and we're doing it together, our hope is we create a space that actually shows the fruit of living into that flourishing life. And if we are doing that, then it's not something we keep to ourselves, 
It's something that we're continually looking to invite others into so that we can not only change this community here, we can hopefully change the community around us as well. All of us striving in the same direction. Those are our four commitments of partnership. Now, we talked about partnership a little bit each week, too, because we, we're going to ask you today specifically uh, to make an official commitment to, be in, to partnering with each other. That's not saying you're partnering with, that, with the, an institution. It's saying together we're committed to these four things. And by, by filling out a card and, and turning it in, you're saying for the next year, I'm going to do my best to hold those four commitments. Now, we do, we, we've said it each week, and we want to make sure we say it again. Uh, it's easy when we start talking about partnership to think about it in the terms of old school church membership. Uh, where membership had its place at one point, and maybe still does in certain circles, we've changed the word to partnership on purpose. Uh, because at least in the space that we live in now, membership tends to come with an idea uh, of an exchange. I give you something, you give me something. Uh, if you're a member, you have certain benefits that you don't have if you're not. Right? Or if you, if you contribute enough, then you get, you get something back from us. Uh, whether you decide to partner with us today or in the future or not, will not change our posture towards you. You can belong here whether you're a partner with us or if you're not a partner with us. You, you can be part of this community in that way because, again, uh, our posture towards you won't change. You're committing to each other in that space, which is why we picked the word partnership. Because if membership requires an exchange, partnership re requires a commitment. To say, we're gonna, when, th when things are good, we'll be in this thing together. When things get difficult, we'll be in this thing together. With all of those things in mind, today I want to shift us to a little bit different question. So we've been asking ourselves the question each week, why church? Why do we do this thing? But the question I want to ask today as we close it's not necessarily why church, but what is Christian? What does it mean to be Christian? What is the definition of the word Christian? Because see, there are a lot of things that we can define pretty quickly and accurately. If I were to say, what is America? You could go, it's the space that we live in based on these borders. What is a comic? You would all know what that means. What is football? Unless you were Sparty, you would know exactly what that means, Right? <laughs> but, with all of those things in mind, if we were to do a quick survey of this room, and if I was to ask, what is Christian, or what is a Christian, to all of you in this room, my guess is we'd get a number of different answers, a variety of different answers. If I were to expand the survey out of this room to the neighborhood around us, I wouldn't doubt we'd get an even broader variety of answers to what is Christian. You see, for some people... Christian is defined by what you do or don't do, how you behave, in other words. A Christian is somebody who goes to church every week. If you grew up Baptist, no dancing, all right, no mowing your grass on Sunday if you were CRC, right? Those kinds of things of what you either do or don't do. Uh, my grandma used to tell me stories of when she was growing up, and Sunday sounded hellish. I'm not kidding. It was like, you can't look at anybody, you just take naps, you don't play, you can't, right? Like, there's nothing to do. It was it. And I'm like, God, that's horrible. Uh, but that was the way it was then for her. Right? It was, it, being a Christian was defined with, by either what you do or what you don't do. And that's still the case for many, many people. For others, though, being a Christian is more about what you believe. That's where our denominational disputes come into play, right? 
what you believe about how the world's going to end or when to baptize somebody or how the Holy Spirit works. And in in other words, in those spaces, if you believe the right things, you're all good. And if you don't, then you're something else, and we wonder. Sadly, there's also another large group, when asked to define Christian, that go an entirely different route. When people who do not view themselves as Christian are asked what what is Christian, their top answers tend to be negative, unfortunately. The answers tend to be judgmental, homophobic, they're moralists, they're hypocritical. They're people who think they're the only ones going to heaven and secretly relish the fact that everyone else is going to hell. Depending on who you ask in what space, the definition of Christian is confusing. And we've all kind of experienced that a little bit, haven't we? If you've ever been out in the world and, and been asked by someone before, hey, you're a Christian? Have you ever in those moments found yourself scrambling a little bit? I know I have, and I, I'm not a, a proud of that, but I, but I, but I am. Because my, my answer tends to be, well, yes, but not this, though, right? Like, depending on how you're asking the question, am I Christian? Yes, definitely, but not that kind, right? Or I don't believe in those things, we tend, to, we tend to want to put a caveat on it of what does that actually mean. When we try to define what it means to be Christian, it's not so easy. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking, sure, we've made it complicated. We've added all this extra stuff in, and which is why it gets to that way. Which is classic us, right? That's what we do. But all, all that that means is that we just need to then go back to the Bible. How does it define Christian? And the strange thing is, though, the Bible really doesn't. You see, the word Christian only appears three times in the entire Bible. That was surprising to me, and maybe it is to you as well. And each time it's it's used in the New Testament, it's not in the Old Testament at all, when each time it's used in the New Testament, it's used as a derogatory, derogatory term by others to describe the Jesus community. Actually, in Scripture, the Jesus community itself never defines itself as Christian, never calls themselves that. They they referred to themselves as ones who followed the way, which was interesting. Which also sounds like the Mandalorian, which I know some of you are thinking, right? This is is the way. All right. (laughs) You see, after the resurrection, the church starts in Jerusalem. James, Peter, they're, 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 they're kind of the ones in charge of the church in Jerusalem. And the church goes rapidly, so much so, it makes the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders nervous. And so this persecution starts to begin, spreading the Christian church out of Jerusalem into the rest of the world, until we get to a place called Antioch, which is, which is the first place Jesus' followers were called Christians. We see that in Acts 11. Acts 11.25 says, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul, Saul eventually becomes Paul, uh, met with the church and taught a great number of people. The disciples were, were called Christians first at Antioch. This is the first time, we, one of the three instances in which the word Christian is used here. It's when the people in Antioch first, beginning, first begin to call uh, the followers of Jesus, Christians. 
They're not doing it to, to again, they're, they're using it as a derogatory term. There's something to put them down as an insult. Actually, we see that throughout Roman culture, uh, whether not just in Scripture as well. A Roman historian, Tacticus, writes about early Christians as well. And while he's writing about Emperor Nero, but Christians get in there as well, he says this. Consequently, to get rid of the report... Oh, sorry, I left a part out. Tacticus is writing about Nero. Nero, in particular, if you know him as an emperor, was a little off his rocker. Uh, he, he uh, while ruling Rome, decides he didn't li- doesn't like the way Rome's laid out. And so how do you fix that? Because there are buildings and things in the places that you want to put different kinds of buildings. His solution was... Well, then I'll just burn those things down. And so he sets a portion of Rome on fire. Now, as you can imagine, not everybody in Rome liked that. Uh, if that was your building, that your, your home, whatever it was, that ticked you off. Uh, and that is not a good thing for an emperor to have, is a whole bunch of people in your capital city angry with you. So he needs some kind of scapegoat. He needs to blame somebody for that particular fire, and he picks a certain group, and that's where we pick up Tacticus. Consequently, to get rid of the report, the report being that Nero himself burned down Rome, Nero fastened the the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from from whom the native had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hand of one of our procurers, Pontius Pilate. So even from, the, from Tacticus, he says, the populace is the ones that are calling these people Christians. You see, Rome doesn't understand that when people are referring to Jesus as Christ, which actually just means Messiah, it's a title, not a name, it, that name just gets applied to him as person. So when they talk about Christus, they're really talking about Jesus because they call him the Christ, and, and so Tacticus assumes that's his name. And so as a result, then, they're calling these people Christians. Again, a derogatory term used by Roman people for the people who followed this Jesus. You can tell from Tacticus's tone as well, he's, he doesn't view Jesus as somebody significant, right? They're all following this guy who was actually killed by this other guy named Pontius Pilate, which some of you have heard about, some of you haven't, right? So what we see throughout both Scripture and outside of Scripture is that Christians don't call themselves Christians, So what do they call themselves? Well, we can actually see it back in our passage here uh, of Acts 11. Right at the end, it says the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. They called themselves disciples, not Christians, which changes the way we think about some things because we've we've talked here a number of times about what a disciple is, a disciple in the in, in so some of this will be recap. But a disciple in the old test or the old and new testament is somebody who is following a rabbi and wants to become exactly like them. Each rabbi had a group of disciples, and the, his goal was to make those group of disciples be exactly like him in every way: walk like him, talk like him, eat like him, care like him, do what he does. The definition of disciple is pretty narrow. Whomever you're a disciple of, you're trying to become just like that person. And that's what, the, that's what the early Christians called themselves, is disciples of Jesus. And we see that throughout the book of Acts as well. Acts 6, verse 7. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. 
And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Again, not called Christians, called disciples. Acts 9, when he's talking, this is about when Saul, this is, after, this is when Saul, who becomes Paul, is trying to get into uh, the faith. Acts 9, verse 26, when he, when he, Saul, came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. Paul is trying to join the disciples, but if you remember, Saul originally began killing Christians, so they're a little skeptical. But in all of these cases, the way that they referred to themselves were as disciples, as followers of Jesus, as people who are trying to model and shape their lives to look exactly like his. Throughout this entire series, we've talked about, when we're talking about why church, we talk about how when we screw up what's really important things get really weird, and we've seen that throughout the church's history. We've also seen when we can actually narrow it down to what we're actually talking about, amazing things happen, world-changing things happen. I think one of the things that we've lost is the, is the foundation of what we're actually trying to do. What is Christian doesn't matter nearly as much as it means, nearly as much as whether or not we're disciples of Jesus. Are we defining ourselves as disciples or as Christians? Now, we don't have to change our mind. Those things can be this, or the way we talk, I mean. Those things can end up being the same thing. I'm a Christian who is a disciple of Jesus. It's fine. As long as we realize that what we're aiming for is not to follow a bunch of rituals or rules, not to do things in a certain order, in a certain way, but to try to continually model our life after Jesus himself as a disciple. Because that's what this entire series has been driving us to. I'm hoping as a community, we're committing to be disciples together. Not solely defined by a set of behaviors or just a set of beliefs, but as a group of people who are wrestling daily with what it means to look more like Jesus. Now, throughout our whole lives, we're striving to become more like Jesus, like we said, and there are hundreds of different things we can focus on. But there is one aspect that's more important than them all. Not because I think so, but because Jesus says so. See, honestly, if Christ followers were to get this one command right, there's a lot of different ways we can model our life after Jesus, but if we were to get this one command right, the world would be a dramatically different place. So what is that particular command? We find it in John 13. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says this, my children, speaking to his disciples, I will, be, I will be with you only a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. So a new command I give to you. Now, before we go into what that command is, this is a really important moment in which Jesus is speaking to his disciples right before he's going to be crucified. Now, I want, to put yourself, I want you to put yourself in, your, in the disciples' shoes for just a minute here. Imagine you're sitting with Jesus, and he calls you in close. He said, he's like, I've got some really important things to share with you guys. Essentially, he's like, guys, I don't have much time left, and you're not going to be able to come with me, which is a heavy start to the conversation. So he says to them, so I have this new command to you. It's going to be really important, so I need you to pay attention. You have to imagine the guys are all in at this point. They're at the edge of their seats. What's this new command going to be? We'll do it. Let's go. 
Are we flipping everything on its head again? They've seen that over and over and over again. And Jesus says this. A new command I give to you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. I could imagine that that was a little confusing. They're like, okay, what's this new command going to be? We're flipping everything on its head, and Jesus is like, love one another. And they were like, okay, we did that already. Like, remember the whole, like, love God, love each other thing, the greatest commandment? I feel like we tackled this already. This doesn't feel new at all. But, as so often happens with Jesus, he did add something new. He says, love one another, which he has said before. Right, the greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That's already been there. But what he adds is this. Love one another. We got that part. As I have loved you. That's the new part. You can imagine, this isn't in scripture, but you can imagine him going around and describing to them what that means. Hey, Matthew. Guys, remember when we met Matthew? Right? You guys were all like, no, we don't hang out with tax collectors. And I was like, yes, we're going to do it. Right? And, when they, and they did. And then he'd be like, guys, remember that first party Matthew threw for us? He invited all his friends. Remember how uncomfortable we were? Simon Vazelet, you were pretty uncomfortable, I bet. Right? That had to be weird for you. Do you guys remember Matthew and how you had rejected Matthew, all of his buddies? Do you remember how I didn't and I loved him? Do that. Or, Nathaniel, Nathaniel, you remember when your brother first told you about me? And you said, what good can come out of Nazareth? Basically insulting my entire family. You remember that? You remember how we still hung out? Remember how we got here today? Yeah, go do that. You know how I didn't reject you or hate you, but accepted you and loved you? Do that. I got to imagine then he turns to Peter. Oh, Peter. Which one do we choose on this one, right? Maybe it could be the interaction that we're in right now, right? Because so Jesus comes to these guys and he's like, hey, I'm going to leave soon, but I have this really important command. I need you to pay attention. And so they do. And then he gets done. Love, love everybody like, I, like I've loved you. And what's Peter's response? Well, we see it in verse 36. Simon Peter asks him, Lord, where are you going? Bro, seriously? Come on, man. Right? It's like, hey, I need, this is the big command I need you to have. And, so I, and I already told you, you can't come with me. And Peter's like, but, but, but where are you going, though? Because I think I can, right? And actually, that's the beginning of Peter's interaction with Jesus. This is, where are you going? Because I know everybody else might fall away, but I'm not going to. At that point, Jesus says to Peter, actually... You're not even going to be able to stand up to a little girl who questions you in about 12 hours. Classic Pete, right? Deep new command, and he completely misses the point. Where are you going? Because I'm coming. Peter's ready to throw in for Jesus to die for him, but Jesus is asking him to do the harder thing. He's saying, hey, Peter, you know how I've loved you through all of this in which I've given you these big, meaningful things and you've completely missed the point and how you're going to miss the point again. 
This is actually the second time that right after I've did, so done a big important thing, you've completely missed the point. Yeah, I need you guys to love each other like that. Peter, in this case, is ready to go die for Jesus, but Jesus says, actually, I don't want you to die for me right now. I want you to do the harder thing, which is going to be loving these guys after I'm gone. Especially because after I'm gone, things are going to get even harder for you. A new command I give to you, love one another, not like you've seen it done before. Not just people who deserve it. Not just those who love you back. Not ones that fit your set of behaviors or your beliefs. Love like I've loved you. That's a monster command. If you really take a hard look at how Jesus loves each of the people in his life, you realize how many of them failed him or betrayed him or hurt him in one way or another, and yet his love doesn't waver. And Jesus is saying the number one command of my disciples is to do that. Why? That's the part that gives it even more weight. Because that's how the world will know that you are my disciples. Do the early Christians call themselves Christians? No. They called themselves what? Disciples. So essentially what Jesus is saying is the most clear definition of Christian is people who love one another like Jesus did. The way that we treat each other, the way we love each other, is the way the world knows we follow Jesus, which is not a small deal. Imagine for just a few seconds what it would look like if we took that one command seriously. If people walked in and were like, hey, look at how these men treat these women with dignity and respect and value. Or look at how these women treat these men. How they care for each other and love each other. Look how they treat the sick, the people who are down and out and desolate. Look how they treat children or widows or those who are alone. Look how they handle money and, give it to, and share with each other. Look how they handle adversity together, even when they agree and especially when they don't. Look at them love one another well. You can imagine that if, if, if Christians were to do that right, you may still have people saying, I don't know if I want to become one of those, but I'd love to work for one because I know they're going to care for me more than whatever the bottom line is. They may, they may say, I don't, I don't know if I want to become one of those quite yet, but I'd like to have one as my neighbor because I know that will work out okay. I don't know if I want to become one of those, but I wouldn't mind if my daughter started dating one, Right? There are lots of ways that we can, we can take steps in our lives to look more like Jesus. But it all starts here with the new command that Jesus gives to his disciples. How's the world going to know you're my disciple? Well, you need to love each other like I've loved you. See, when we talk partnership, this is what we're talking about. Committing to one another. Committing to love one another like Jesus did. Now, we won't do it perfectly. We're not going to. We haven't done it perfectly. Maybe some of you have even experienced pain in areas in which we haven't done it perfectly. But that's not a surprise. Jesus gives his command to his disciples, 
And he knows they're not going to keep it perfectly either. Actually, Pete literally blows it seconds after Jesus gives the new command, which is the second time he had blown it just seconds after Jesus had given a command. But that's what church is. That's what it means to be Christian, to be disciple, to be a disciple, is to commit to loving one another through it all. Through successes, through our failures, through times when our behaviors are right and when they're not. When we've got a good grasp on what Jesus is saying to us and wrestling together in the spots where we might be off. You see, the word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. But there are 59 commands in the New Testament that include the words one another. Actually, if you're curious about what those all are, they're actually in this little book which you can grab in the back. 59 different times in the New Testament, there's a command that in regards to one another. I'll just read you a few of them. Be at peace with one another. Wash one another's feet. As I have loved you, so love one another, which we talked about today. Be devoted to one another. Live in harmony with one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Accept one another. And we could go on and on and on and on again. There are 59 different, or there are 59 commands, but the one that comes up the, by far the most often is just the simple one that Jesus gives here in John. Love one another. Care for one another more than you care for yourself. We're asking you to partner with us for the next year, partnering with each other for the next year. Partner, what that partnership looks like is, is this command, is to love one another well. We're going to move into a couple really interesting seasons soon. I don't know if you guys know this, but next year is an election season. Last time we had one of those things got weird. Anybody remember that? Right? I'm sure we have people in here who are going to disagree on where we should go on that space. Are we willing to love each other through that? We've got some major things that societally we're going to have to talk about, whether it's human sexuality or gender or how we handle race or how we interact with people around us in this community. All of those different questions are things that, that, that sooner or later we're going to have to wrestle through, ho hopefully together. I can guarantee you we won't all see those things the same way. Which brings us then back to Jesus' command. Love one another as I have loved you. We've said it a number of times here. We already mentioned it today. Matthew was a tax collector. Simon the Zealot killed tax collectors. Jesus said, I need you both. And I need you in my 12. I need you to love one another as I have loved you. In partnership, what we're asking is, can we commit to each other for the next year to wrestle through those things together? We live in a space and a society in which when we disagree, we just separate. We get apart. We go, to, we go into our own spaces with people who think just like us. And it's gotten us into a weird spot. I think we can all admit that regardless on which side of the spectrum we fall. Church is a space in which we can say we, we're, we're not going to be like that. It doesn't say that we're going to see the world the same way. It's not saying that we're going to do things the same way, but it is going to say that we're going to focus on Jesus and try to work towards that even if we don't see it the same way. And we want to invite you into that. So in just a few minutes, we're going to take communion together, which I think is a really, we actually, uh, if you, some of you, most of you probably didn't notice this, but usually we do communion on the second Sunday of every month. If you've been keeping track, this is now the third Sunday. We move communion to today. 
We did it on purpose. Because in just a few minutes, we're going to do communion together. And we wanted communion to be a part of the, the process that we're going to do in just a few seconds. Because in the early church, in the church that we're talking about here, it was a different kind of world, obviously. It was a world of persecution in which they needed to know that they were committed to one another. Because if they weren't, literally life or death stakes were on the table, right? During the time of Nero, the, the way that Nero was persecuting and killing Christians in extravagant ways, we even saw Tacticus write about that. If you were going to join a church, you needed to know that those people around you had your back. Because if somebody sold you out, you might all be dead. And so they made commitments to each other too. Commitments to do similar things to what we're committing as well. And you know, the, the reason we wanted to move communion to this week is they would make those commitments at the communion table. They would come together in what was known at that particular time as a love feast. In which many different places throughout the New Testament was saying, don't show favoritism in those spaces. People who have a lot and people who have a little, make the table open for all. And so just a few seconds, we're going to work through the communion liturgy and then ask you, uh, if you haven't already, to, if, you, if you would like to, make a commitment to each other for this next year in partnership. There are cards in front of you in the pew. Uh, if you don't have one, I can fill those out. There's just, and there's a basket up here on the right. Uh, I'll go th- I'm going to go through the communion liturgy, and I'll say this again at the end. And then I want you to take a few seconds to, to wrestle with whether you, you want to formally commit to partnership at Harbor Life for the next year. If you don't, like I said, that's up to you. That you won't, our posture towards you won't change. But our hope is that in that formal commitment, we can take seriously these four steps throughout the rest of 2023 into 2024. Like I mentioned... The early, Christian, early church made these commitments to each other at the communion table. Because communion is the practice of admitting to ourselves that we all have brokenness in our lives. It's the declaration that we need Christ in our lives, but also a declaration that we need each other too. Commitment one and commitment three. Communion table is a space in which we come so that we realizing that we need Jesus and that we desire to become closer to him, commitment to. See, each of us has fallen short. Each of us has failed one, one way or another, but communion is a reminder that failure is not what defines us in Christ. It's a reminder that Christ has defeated death, and because of that, sin is no longer our master. And so communion is an invitation to affirm or reaffirm our acceptance of this gift in our lives, which is why our table is open to anyone who wants to accept the gift of Christ's love and begin following him or continue to follow him. Commitment four. So what we're going to do here in a minute then is I'm going to invite you to come up front where you can take, take some bread and take some juice. Hopefully you can partner with us as well. Like, like I said, if, you, if that's not something you're ready to do at this point, you can also stay seated. That's fine, too. We're so glad you're here. We want, we want you to, to feel welcome and in, invited into that space, too. You see, at the table, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion kindness, 
humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts as members of one body were called to peace and be thankful. Now hear these words from Luke 22, 14 through 20. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you that I will not eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it amongst yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took bread and he broke it. He said, this is the sign of my body broken for you. When you eat it, remember me. Likewise, he took the cup and he said, this is a symbol of my blood shed for you, the sign of a new covenant, covenant of grace. When you drink it, remember me. As you reflect on those words of Jesus, as you reflect on the partnership and the commitments we're making, I want to encourage you, I'm going to pray here in a second, I encourage you to take a few seconds uh, and reflect on whether you want to formally partner with us or not. Fill out the card then and come up and you can put it in the basket in the front. Will you pray with me? Father God, we want to come before you this morning and realize that the command that you've given us is not an easy one. It's simple in some ways, love one another. But when we really think about what it means to love one another like you've loved us, that gets exceptionally difficult. God, we pray for the strength to be able to do that well. To love the people in our lives who are exceedingly difficult to love. So many of us have people in mind already. People who've hurt us. People who aggravate us, who push our buttons, who push us to the edge. Lord, we pray that you give us eyes to see what you did for us and give us the energy and strength to be able to do that towards each other. God, we pray that those who are committing to partner together today can continually strive to show that love to one another. Not so that, that we can have some kind of uh, arbitrary commitment to an organization or something like that, but because that we know that when we are committed to loving each other through the good things and the bad things, the world will know that you are who you said you are. The world will know that we are followers of you. Amen.